Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will continue the discussion of male and female and marriage uh, as presented in the end of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 well, 26 and 27, the creation of man, but specifically the genders, female, male and female, and then also into chapter two, and we'll probably have a little discussion of marriage, and then we'll be able to work through a couple things. But where we last left off, uh, we had talked about uh, the process that God could simply have created them, spoken them into existence like everything else. But he took time, and the Bible gives us insight into that in his creation of Adam, chapter 2, verse 7. So there was that process, and, uh, and then there was a, a time factor involved there. There was a process uh, of formation that gives a nod to Psalm 139, so we talked about that. And now we want to address the idea of function. And the question here is, what was accomplished in the creation of man? mankind, male and female, what was the, uh, what, what was accomplished in the marriage? What, what is the function of mankind on the earth? And so uh, very quickly, as we move through this, we discover that it's not a question of superiority. Eve was created from Adam's side, not from his head to lord it over him and not from his foot that he might step on her as so many are apt to say. Uh, and that is true. So it's not a question of superiority. In fact, we get that later on, but there is function that is involved here. And that's why the house is set up the way that it is. That's why the church is set up the way that it is. Not everybody gets to be king. Not everybody can be in the driver's seat. To give it a a very modern day uh, application, if the whole family is going somewhere and they all want to be the driver, that's a problem and there will be chaos if everybody piles into the driver's seat. Somebody's got to sit somewhere else. There's got to be a little form and structure to it. So it's not really a question of superiority. Uh, And also we bring into this the idea of the image of God. And we did discuss this at length in another uh, episode, so we won't We won't dwell on that again here, but again, this is separate from the rest of the animal world. And he uses man, we will make man plural, it's a collective noun in our image, which is reinforced then in uh, the next verse of verse 27 of chapter 1 with the two genders. How did he make collective man? Two ways, in his image and male and female. So that leads us to this conclusion and implication, right, that the image of God is not more prominent in one sex over another. In other words, you don't see God's image more fully in women than you do males or vice versa. All right, last point under this idea of function then is the idea, uh, Raymond Ortland said it this way in, uh, in a chapter in Rediscovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. He wrote a chapter Uh, which we could call like an article entry, really, uh, called Male, Female, Equality, and Male Headship. And in that chapter, he points this out, that there is no necessary relation between personal role and personal worth. 
Feminism denies this principle. Feminism insists that personal role and personal worth must go together so that a limitation in role reduces or threatens personal worth. But why? The absurdity of feminism lies in its irrational demand that a woman cannot be a serious person unless she occupies a position of headship. That's all Raymond Ortland there, and he's addressing this idea of equality uh, or superiority, really, and he's tying it into the modern philosophy that says in the modern viewpoint that says that a woman's role of a female's personal worth has to be tied uh, to her role. Uh, they have to go together. And so that's just simply not true. All right. So that's, that's the idea of function in that verse. And then we want to move on now and continue this discussion, not just talking about the differences of male and female, but we want to, we want to talk about marriage and, and then we'll get through and, and work through some of chapter two, verse by verse. But chapter two obviously incorporates marriage. So the first thing we want to talk about under this is the idea of the time of marriage. When did marriage take place? Very important that we have these discussions and that we can provide a biblical answer for them and think through them this way, because it helps us in the discussion that we're inevitably going to have today with so many so many things going on with regards to marriage and, and sexuality and gender and those type of things. So the first thing that we want to note on marriage is the time of it. Marriage was instituted and is instituted by God. It's not something that mankind decided to do, but God is the one that brought them together. God is the one that created Eve and so forth. But it all happened before the fall. So here we have an institution by God, and God has many institutions. Um, marriage is such an institution. Uh, human government, the church is an institution, right? So we have various things, but marriage was an institution that took place prior to the fall. And it is the first institution uh, of God. And there we have it. It's marriage. Now, what is marriage? Marriage by definition is a gender issue. So when we think of marriage, we have to think of it in these terms. It's not just simply what do I feel that I want and my felt needs. Marriage has to be defined. Uh, we have to allow the scriptures to define it, and we have to allow God to define it, obviously, through the scriptures. And it's not according to our whims and our personal desires. It's not simply a matter of who do I like and what do I want to do? I mean, we have so many ridiculous uh, manifestations of that now where we have people who decide, well, I just really like my dog. And I use that because it sounds ludicrous, but we actually have instances in the modern day now where we have records of people legally marrying their dog because we have just cast morality and uh, all these things out the window and never mind, I, I don't think that there's a, a untoward relationship going on in that. I don't think so. I hope not. <laughs> uh, but what we're talking about is they're basically making a mockery of it. Marriage really is a gender issue. And once we allow God to define it and we allow the scriptures to speak on it, then we have to stay within those definitions and stay within those boundaries. So it is a gender issue. It ties back to creation. It goes back to Adam naming the animals. And it is an issue of suitability. So marriage is an issue of creation. 
Marriage is an issue of suitability, aloneness versus loneliness, and it's an issue of male and female. It's an issue of gender. So God set up gender in nature as a teaching tool. One author put it this way, he said, I am convinced that God has both anticipated and ordained our search for wisdom through the study of nature. And here he's talking about Romans chapter 1, verse 20, as well as Psalm 104, verse 24. According to Psalm 19, David points to two sources uh, for truth. He says there is nature, which is general revelation, and then there's God's word, specific revelation. So then that leads us to ask this. I mean, what we know with regards to general revelation is we just know that God exists and we can't know the specifics of the creation process. We can't know how that all took place. We can't know about the image of God in man. We can't know those things apart from specific revelation. And what's more, we can't know of Christ apart from specific revelation, special revelation. Uh, We can't know of God's holiness, our sinfulness, uh, the Savior that was forecasted and prophesied and who was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so we have to look then not only at nature around us that does instruct us and nature does instruct us, uh, really, really funny. We now live in a day and age where there are supposedly limitless amounts of gender. I don't even know what that means. I'm sorry, gender is a binary issue. There are two genders, that's it. And that's all that the Bible recognizes. But supposedly we have people with multiple PhDs, absolutely godless, who look at the world around us and say, well, whatever you feel today, uh, that's your sexuality and gender. And therefore, I think, I don't know what the latest count is. I'm just taking a stab in the dark. I'm probably wrong because it changes every day. But I think there's something like, I don't remember what it is, 37 genders at this point, uh, which is preposterous. But one one of the things that I find hilarious about this entire thing is the idea that uh, we only observe supposedly because it's not observation. You can't observe this, but uh, we only have that many genders, so called, within humanity. Uh, when you look at nature around us, and you look at uh, you know canines, and you look at bovines, and you look at equines, you know horses and cows and dogs and cats and everything else that's in nature, you find two genders. That's it. You don't find thirty-seven genders. Uh, there's male and female. So nature is instructive. And so now that we come back to this, and we see not only is there general revelation which it teaches us about gender. But there's also special revelation as well. And so now let's bring the discussion back to human humanity, to mankind. Let's ask the question, is there a difference between men and women? It has to be asked. Uh, a few years ago, when I had the opportunity to uh, preach through these texts, was the very first time in the history of the United States military that a female, a woman, had successfully completed the Army Ranger School after multiple failures. They were all about the whole egalitarian thing, but they were adamant that they could not uh, relax the standards. And so there were many, many, many failures. And finally, it came about that a woman passed. So it was G.I. Jane in real life. The whole idea of modern feminism is that women can and should do anything that a man can do, that they're equal in every way. And now it seems that feminism has started to go so far as to state that women are in fact superior to men in every way. Equality is not enough, superiority at all costs. 
Okay, so then we have this idea, and one author, Greg Johnson, uh, goes on to say in his article that the differences between male and female are not only real, but likely have their roots in our unique biology as males and females. Furthermore, these differences are present at birth and even before and are amplified according to individual hormonal and genetic uh, dictates. We are differently gifted as male and female, not only in anatomy and physiology, but also in behavior. It is a marvelous God-given pattern that enhances pair bonding, dual parenting, and extensive division of labor, characteristic not only of humans, but of many of the higher social animals. All right, so that brings us then to a few categories. Number one, there are societal differences in the gender uh, discussion between men and women. Again, quoting, anthropologists find similar kinds of universal sex-specific behaviors among human culture. Of 250 cultures studied, males dominate in almost all. Males are almost always the rule makers, hunters, builders, fashioners of weapons, workers in metal, wood, or stone. Women are primary caregivers and most involved in child rearing. Their activities center on maintenance and care of home and family. They are more often involved in making pottery, baskets, clothes, blankets, etc. They gather food, preserve and prepare food, obtain and carry firewood and water. They collect and grind grain. The fact that these universals transcend divergent animal groups and cultures suggests that there must be more than a cultural basis for these sex differences. The data point to biological predeterminants of gender-related behavior. So what that's saying in summary is that they, there have been literally hundreds of studies of cultures that don't know each other, that didn't know that they were being studied and observed, and they found unique characteristics among cultures all across the globe, of different cultures, different areas, different languages, different customs, everything, and yet they found that there were a certain set of traits that were characteristic of males and females across the board that seems to go uh, pretty, pretty deep uh, beyond just society. All right. And that really goes against so much of what our society, our particular society is trying to tell us today. They're saying there's no difference at all. And what shame is there in a man being a homemaker and so forth. And, you know, now we've been, we've been fed this line for a long time. Now we can see the start of it going back decades, but now we have been inundated inundated with it nonstop for at least, you know, I'd estimate about 10 years where it's just been shoved in our face nonstop. It's a, it's really a propaganda campaign to try and break down the nuclear family and, and marriage as an institution, which they've been very, you know, almost nearly successful in. All right. So that's societal. There's a societal difference. Let's talk about the non-nervous system physiology. We're going to get a little technical here. But this is really interesting. And I had mentioned in a previous one, just as a kind of a cursory thought, that there are physiolo physiological differences that go way beyond just the skin, the surface, the epidermis. Okay, and that's what our society today in their perversion and uh, twisting of the truth has just made it about externals, which is not true. There's so much there and even more studies, even since uh, this research, but uh, it all comes out and says the same thing. And this is pretty extensive here. Uh it's become common to hear the following line of rhetoric. 
any behavioral differences between men and women that can be measured have been viewed as reflections of culturally imposed norms, right? So they were expecting something different when they just studied society, as we noted in the previous point just a minute ago. But now people are saying if there are differences, that's because of culturally imposed norms. Well, this is not true. There are many physiological differences. Buckle up. Let's get to them. Number one, metabolic rate is 6% higher in adolescent boys than it is in girls. Wonder why that is. Can't say that's society. 10% in adult men over women. During metabolism, boys tend to turn energy into muscle, whereas girls tend to turn energy into fat. By age 18, girls have almost twice the body fat, about 33% over boys. Boys at age 18 have about 50% more muscle mass than girls, particularly in the upper body. That's just statistics and averages, okay? Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just reporting the the reports, the data. Uh, I'm the mailman here. I'm just delivering the facts. Let's move on to bones, tendons, and ligaments. Males have denser, uh, stronger bones, tendons, and ligaments than females on average. This allows for heavier work, heavier. You want to see this fleshed out? Look at a female bodybuilder. Never mind how out of place the female bodybuilder looks. They simply cannot compete on the same level as men can. And by the way, with so many of the gender transitions, one of the things I've uh, I've mentioned, I even said this to my wife not too long ago, I think within the last couple of weeks, I said, isn't it interesting with all the transitions that we're hearing about now? This is just becoming so commonplace. It's almost comical, but you rarely hear of females supposedly transitioning to males, you do hear about it. Okay. I'm not saying that that doesn't exist and they're doing the whole surgery to go with it. Not just the, the hormonal therapy and, and psych, you know, psychological, uh, therapy and things like that, but they're doing like the double mastectomy and the phalloplasty. And, you know, this is ridiculous. It's, it's, uh, it's really, it's criminal. Uh, you know, that's, we'll, we'll have to get into that a little bit later, but it doesn't matter when you change the externals, you can't change uh, what's on the inside. And one of the things is, is when you do see ma- uh, females, supposedly, I have to put all this in quotes because you can't actually change your gender. Uh, when you see them transitioning to male, you don't see them entering the male sports, uh, you know, uh, professional sports arenas. Now in our day and age over the last couple of years, anybody listening to this podcast will know that we have seen a proliferation of males, males transitioning so-called to females, including the surgery. And then they go on to dominate all female sports and they break world records that had been longstanding and they don't just break them by, you know, if, if it's a timed sport or something like this, you know, speed, a race or something like that. They don't just break it by a couple milliseconds. They break it by several seconds. And in some cases, not all, the male was a poor performer against other males, you know, not even in competition for top spots. But once they made that transition to so-called female, they were able to dominate the entire uh, the entire category of sports. It's sad. Uh, in some ways, we just have to laugh for not crying. Uh, it's it's just awful because right there at the base of everything, we have to understand that we have the science to prove that the bone density is more in a male. The tendons are thicker. 
the ligaments are stronger in males than they are in females. That's why historically, all the way up until about 10 seconds ago, it seems like males would compete against other males in sports and they would have a category for males and a category for females and never the twain shall meet except now because we live in a topsy-turvy world where we call evil good and good evil up, down, and so forth. Okay. Um, but I say all that because a female bodybuilder, uh, you don't see them transitioning to male and then all of a sudden going in and winning. There is no female on the planet. There are females on the planet that are stronger than me. I'm not the strongest guy out there. I'm not a, I'm not a professional bodybuilder, uh, anything like that. So uh, yeah, I'm not saying that I am. Don't get me wrong on any of that. But what I am saying is that you take the strongest female in the world today who is an ultra bodybuilder. And again, like I said, it doesn't matter. They do look out of place, but you pair her against the strongest male and it is, uh, they are leagues apart from each other. All right. So we've talked about a metabolic rate. We've talked about bones, tendons, ligaments. Let's talk about the sweat glands, not something you normally think about, but males have more sweat glands. They can actually count this, right? And they can dissipate heat faster than females. This is something you can just measure, right? You can actually go in and count the glands. Males have more than females. Key here is heat retention versus dissipation. Females can retain it better, which means that by and large, they do better with handling cold and subsequently uh, have been able to perform at endurance sports at almost the same level as males, like in swimming and long distance running. Uh, but it, it's interesting to note that there is a noticeable marked difference in the sweat glands, which allows for different sports. But then you see in things where heat retention is not, uh, in the cold weather instances, right, that then you can actually bring the female closer to the category of males. What about windpipes, breathing, air supply to the lungs? Uh, what are we talking about here from a physiological standpoint? Uh, men, on average, have larger windpipes and branching bronchi and 30% greater lung capacity taken as a percent of their respective body weights. So on average, there are some exceptions, but taken as a whole, when you just take a group of people and you divide them by male and female, the majority of those males are going to have 30% greater lung capacity over the, the females uh, to uh, next to which they're standing. Okay, what about hearts? Men on average have larger hearts and can pump a larger volume of blood. Uh, we can just measure the capacity. So again, it's something that we just we just need to accept the science on this and and recognize that science, okay, does science change? Yes, but when we're talking about observable data here, when we can go in and count and document, take pictures of, diagram, and, and all of these things, uh, this is not something that is like given to whims. This is not subject to like uh, social media and pressure and people, you know, rioting on the streets. No, no, no amount of rioting is going to change the volume of blood that is pumped through your body. Okay. Uh, what about red blood cell counts? 
Men have 10% higher on average than women red blood cell counts. White blood cell counts, women have more white blood cell counts. They can fight off infections and diseases better than men. That's documented. By the way, interesting side note, you know, uh, this whole idea behind the man cold or the man flu uh, and how men are just very much more affected by those things than women seem to be. There's actually some science behind it right here because women on average tend to have higher white blood cell counts. Very interesting. What about antibodies? Antibodies. Women produce more antibodies and faster than men, which means that if they are exposed to a virus that is able to get away and affect them, that they can actually recover from it faster than men can. Again, the whole man flu there. Uh, we've got some science behind that. What about the digestive system? In males, the digestive system functions at a higher pace. What about teeth? Male have larger teeth than females do. What about the salivary and gastric glands? Well, in males, they have larger and more, all right, larger salivary glands and more gastric glands than females do, which leads to, not a good thing, more ulcers. So overall, men have more ulcers than women do because of that difference. And again, these are just things that we can observe and have been observed and papers have been written. All right, let's talk about hormones then. Uh, there are vastly different proportions of testosterone and estrogen in males versus females. By the way, both genders have both hormone sets, but we tend to think of testosterone as the male hormone and estrogen as the female. And in fact, when people are going through so-called we have to keep it there. So-called transition from one to the other. If you're a male and you're so-called transitioning to female, which isn't possible again, one of the things that they'll do is they'll start pumping your body full of estrogen uh, way more than it would be natural. And it has devastating long-term effects, which uh, is sadly uh, being suppressed. Those studies are being hidden, censored, uh, and suppressed because the the powers that be that are pushing this narrative do not want people uh, to to understand that there are, in fact, ramifications to these decisions. They're hiding the fact that uh, after time when people have done these, not just in a uh, chemical way, but have gone in and actually undergone surgery, uh, that the depression rate in people who have done these gender reassignment surgeries and gone through the therapy and changed the hormonal levels of their bodies, both ways, this is both ways, this uh, this isn't just one particular subset. Within seven years, their depression and suicide rate is like off the charts compared to peers their age. And you can't say that that's because of harassment. These people have been supported. They're, they're, they're very troubled because it's really messed them up. All right. What about the peripheral nervous system? I know this has gone long, but we want to, we want to get through this so that we can continue on to the text. So I just need those who are listening to understand there are incredible differences and I am barely skimming the surface. I am not a biologist. Uh, I can read though. Okay. So that doesn't mean that when I say something and I quote a paper, which I'm doing uh, in large part here, uh, that that means somehow it's false because I didn't go on and get my degrees uh, in these things. I can read, I knew, I do know how to research and I can bring you the goods of the people that have done these things. Uh, we're barely skimming the surface. There are so many differences between men and women that go so far beyond just what we see in the outward appearance. Let's talk about the nervous system for a second. Uh, women have more acute sense of touch and perception. That's just been documented. Uh, and men have less, obviously. Uh, what about the senses? Uh, the senses such as uh, smell and 
um, taste and those type of things. They're heightened in women. So women are more, uh, they're more sensitive to those. What about the limbic system? We're talking about brain develop, uh, brain development. Uh, at birth, female infants have been noted to orient and fix their focus more often on faces, and they are comforted by voices and touch and vocalize more often than boys. We just notice that. There's no, there's no societal input on that. I mean, this is happening. These studies are happening in hospital nurseries, okay? So female infants fix their focus on faces. That's what they're interested in. They're comforted by voices and touch. And they are more apt to use their voice to vocalize than boys. They respond earlier to smells and sounds, and they talk sooner. This is all just incontrovertible. What about males? Well, male infants orient more to objects instead of the face. Lights, toys, they're comforted by patterned mobiles and ticking clocks more than sometimes the idea of voices and touch. So very, very interesting. Okay, very quickly, we'll just touch on two last things here, uh, and then we'll get to it when we work through chapter two, verse by verse. Uh, but roles of marriage, interesting when we come now to the end of chapter two, uh, where we see uh, this, right? Uh, so Lord God calls a deep sleep. Uh, he said, this is the last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall become woman. Okay, very end of chapter two, verse 24 of Genesis two. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, so the roles of marriage, we see husband and wife here. And what is the duration? God instituted marriage right here in this verse. And we'll have a lot more to say on that when we actually come to that section verse by verse. But we know that the duration of marriage was intended to be permanent while on this earth. Jesus actually quotes this verse in Matthew chapter 19, verse four, when he was questioned about divorce. And he says, no, from the beginning, all the way at creation before the fall, it was not supposed to be that way. There is a one flesh aspect of marriage. And the picture then of marriage, God is bringing these two very different genders, these two sexes together in heterosexual monogamous marriage. That is the design and the biblical picture that we uh, get here. What is it supposed to do? Because we know that in heaven, we will never be, um, we will never be married. We will never give someone in marriage, nor will we be given in marriage. And so the picture is of God and his people, Jesus and his church. And when we think about it in those terms, we ask the question, will God ever go back on his word? In other words, is there anything that we can do that would cause him to divorce us? Uh, will God ever break the terms of a, of a unilateral covenant, okay? Uh, or even his part in a bilateral covenant. Boy, those are things <laughs> we could go on for an hour talking about covenants. A bilaterals, two-party covenant where two parties have responsibilities, unilateral, only one party has responsibility. But uh, in unilateral, God is the only actor ever. There's never a unilateral covenant that man just makes with himself. Uh, so unilateral covenants like the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, those are unilateral. Uh, and there's no conditions placed on man. God just says, I'll do this. 
and he swears and makes it legal and covenant binding, right? Bilateral, by is just two, uh, or right? So in a bilateral covenant, now you have God uh, saying, I have my part to do. And then he says to man, you have your part to do. Uh, the Mosaic covenant would be a bilateral covenant. Uh, and there, he said, anytime there's a bilateral covenant in scripture, man always messes his part up. But does God ever mess his part up? Not at all, right? And so we have to understand that, that marriage is actually a picture of the relationship that we will share with God, which is why it should be permanent on earth. There are very few exceptions. And now because we live in a sinful and fallen world, we have to take those as they come, but we should always view them as exceptions, not as normative and especially not prescriptive. We should never be out to divorce. We should always be looking for a way to make it work uh, because God is always faithful and he will never leave us nor forsake us. Well, I've gone exceptionally long today. I apologize. This is my longest podcast. I think we got through all the technical scientific data and we'll move in uh, to the text in our next episode. This has been another podcast of expositional excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website, at gfbc.net.